Welcome to The Policy Shop, weekly conversations with public policy experts where we'll dive into the most important issues affecting all of us here in Illinois. I'm Hillary Gowans. Let's get started. Joining me today is Matt Paprocki, president of the Illinois Policy Institute. Matt's going to break down who we are here at the Institute and why he fights to save Illinois every single day. Matt, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. It's nice to have you. This is the first time having you on the podcast. Oh, it's good to be here. This is nice. There's a good setup here. It's got a good vibe. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you're the president here at IPI. That's right. Tell us what you do and why do you do it? I lead one of the best organizations in the country. And, and what I love about it is that it's, it's leading an idea. Is it's, this, it's this idea that this country was built with a root of free markets in the American dream, right? It, it's made the United States unique, as different than any other European, any other country throughout the world. And uh, that's where like, the seeds are really sown here in Chicago in the state of Illinois. Uh, and we've seen a break from that. We've seen a higher increase in corruption and other governmental problems. Uh, But there's major opportunities here in Illinois. uh, And I lead one of the greatest groups of people that that I know of, really experts in their individual fields from policy to marketing to media to comms. Uh, They all come together in this place to change the state of Illinois and ultimately the trajectory of this country. So... It's interesting that you're here in Illinois now. You're from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Uh, so how did you end up here at IPI, and what drew you to the organization? Uh, you don't choose where you're born, but you choose where you're going to live and ultimately where you're going to die. Uh, I love Illinois. I grew up in Green Bay. My parents uh, lived there. My father was an air traffic controller. So originally, they're from the west suburbs of Chicago, but you move around to different airports based on uh, how long you've been serving, and uh, your ability as an air traffic controller. And my family settled in Green Bay. And so we always came to Chicago for holidays. And I remember uh, being about 10 years old, and I first came to the city here downtown Chicago. And I remember looking up at the buildings and being completely blown away. It, in fact, it happened, uh, my, my aunt took me to the Sears Tower, or excuse me, uh, she took me to the Hancock Building. And we went out to eat in the basement. And in the basement of the Hancock building, uh, they have a cheesecake factory. And I thought we just were doing it up. We ate at the Cheesecake Factory. And I remember I got done and I said, if I ever make it, I'm going to be able to go to the Cheesecake Factory (laughs) and take other people there. Uh, And that was like the dream for me. And it's something I still thought about. It's funny. It was uh, about a year ago. My wife and I walked by the Cheesecake Factory. And I was like, we got to go in. Because... I made it, right? Like I can afford Cheesecake Factory now. Uh, but that was really a foundational moment. On You saw the bustle of the city. You saw this energy in this life. And that doesn't happen in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You know, I mean, it's a lovely place and I loved it. There's a magic. There's something special happening here. Uh, I want to be a part of it. So Chicago is kind of your mini American dream. Totally. is. In fact, I actually think it's not just my American dream. I think it's the country's American dream. Because when you trace back the roots, the American dream started here. It started in Chicago. You know, when Chicago first came about, it's not like any other city in the history of the world. It was nothing. It was literally swampland to the point that Native Americans didn't even live here. You know, so when Marquette, you know, came up here for the first time, you were portaging swampland to get anywhere. And that was Chicago. But what happened is 
people realized that when you came to Chicago, when you came through Lake Michigan, and they could finally connect it with the, the Mississippi, the whole world had access to them. And so people came here, and they, they came here for, for two reasons, is they were guaranteed prosperity, and they were guaranteed dignity. It was through work, through jobs. And so people came from, from Ireland, they came from Poland, they came from Germany, they came from the rest of the United States for the guarantee of this promise. Right? That's the American dream, is that if you work hard and you do what you're supposed to, you can live a more prosperous life than your parents did. Right? That happened here, and it spread throughout the rest of the country. And so when I think of Chicago, I don't just think of my American dream. I think this is the American dream for this nation. Uh, that's part of why I care so much about fighting for it, is it is historically rooted in what makes this country great. So we're just a couple of kids from other states in the Midwest that's who right, ended up right. in Illinois. Yeah. And now here we are Ohio. fighting. What, you brought, what brought you here from Ohio? Uh, grad school. Yeah. And I stayed because my husband lived here and we were dating at the time and now here we are, two kids, and I am working you, passionately. Have you gone to the Cheesecake Factory yet? I, I went to the Cheesecake Factory in high school in Ohio. If anyone listening is from Columbus, the Cheesecake Factory at Easton Town Center in Columbus was the place to be I uh, in high school. I okay, but I say all that because it's really interesting that you and I, neither of us is from here, mm -hmm. but we, like you mentioned, found opportunity, made our homes here, and now we're fighting so that other people can have the same opportunity that we had. So I wanna talk more now about IPI because you didn't work at IPI prior to 10 years ago, right? You were working in the state or with the state. Um, so I'm interested to hear about your professional journey coming from the legislature, what that was like, and then why you came to IPI in the first place and what you've been able to do here. So I started off, I came in, uh, I worked for the state of Illinois, and I was there a week. And I realized working for the state, working in politics, everything that I thought I knew about politics was completely wrong. And, and, and there's, this, there's this myth that they teach you in school, in education, this political science uh, studies. And they tell you how things should work or how things could work, which is very different than how things actually work. So I, I go down to Springfield, I'm brand new, and uh, I get assigned to pensions committee. So that means that I would create what would assign to as cliff notes or spark notes on uh, all bills that had to do with pensions for the state of Illinois, for the Illinois General Assembly. Because despite what we think, lawmakers don't read most of the bills that come across their desk. And it's not because they're not smart and they're not hardworking. It's, to the contrary, uh, it's there's 10,000 bills that get introduced. And so the idea of understanding the complexities of all the factors of 10,000 bills, it's just not possible. So they have staffs. And I worked on the pension uh, committee. And I remember I had a pension bill. It came across my desk. I analyze it, meaning that I say who's for it, who's against it, what does it cost, what's the impact, and I would give it to lawmakers. So I take this, we have pension committee, the bill's gonna be heard. It's my first bill, it's my first committee, so I sit down and I sit next to, uh, I'm going to revoke his name for the purpose of this conversation, but a, a Southern uh, lawmaker down, uh, down in Springfield area. And uh, he asked me, I sit down, he goes, you, you the new staffer on pensions? And I said, yeah, that's me. I'm 21 years old. I'm a kid. And he goes, all right, 
So am I for this bill or am I against it? And I said, well, here's what the bill does. Here's, who's, here's who the groups who are for it. Here's who's against it. Here's what it costs. And he goes, I don't care about none of that. You just tell me, am I good or not? And I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, I've got no idea, right? I, have, I, I just learned what a pension was two weeks earlier. I'm trying to figure this out. I look at the bill and I said, Poet looks like a good, good bill. Maybe, I guess I just gave away who it was at that point. I said I was going to revoke it. <laughs> he said, are you good or not? And I said, I think, I think it's a good bill. He goes, all right, we good with it. He leans over, yells to the other member of committee, goes, hey, we good on this bill. Two seconds later, they gavel in. They vote for the bill. They gavel out. That's it. And I remember sitting there, and I'm sitting there after committee gets heard, and I'm like, I'm having this like song of schoolhouse rock on like how a bill becomes a law and thinking, Nobody tells me this. Like, nobody told me that there's going to be some staffer who's going to go talk about what this bill, if they're good or not. And that's when I got hooked. Like, that's when I realized that there was an undercurrent that's happening with every bill, the bills that affect our lives. And there's something happening below the surface. And it's not good enough just to stay engaged on what people tell us is going on. It's finding out what are the triggers to actually make change. So then I did that for seven years. And John Tillman, uh, who's the CEO, came to me and he said, I've got an idea. I want to hire a lobbyist, which is a radical concept for this. We are a public policy organization. So down in Springfield, all you have is special interest, right? You have unions groups, you have manufacturing groups, you have townships, and you have municipalities, and you have every special interest, except one, taxpayers. Right, which fundamentally, that's exactly who should be at the table for every single one of these issues. But it wasn't until John said, I want to have a lobbyist to go fight on behalf of taxpayers. So it's not every two years or every four years they can become engaged. It's every day where the bills that are affecting their lives, they can go effectuate change. And I thought, this is awesome. Uh, and that really set the tone for me is Illinois Policy Institute at its core, it's it's an innovative think tank who solves old problems, right? We're coming up with new approaches to old problems. And I think that's core with John's original approach. And that's exactly what we think about every day is none of the problems in the state, any of the problems that we're fighting for, they're nothing new. But we're coming up with innovative new ways to solve them. I didn't realize you were 21 when you started working on staff yeah. on pensions. So you've been working on this pension crisis since you were 21 years old. Yeah. And you've seen how it works. You've seen how the sausage is made. Like, you know what goes on in Springfield. You've been here for 10 years and you've learned so much about everything going on in Illinois. All of the good and then all of the bad. So the yeah. pension crisis, our perpetual budget crises, right. uh, public corruption. Yeah. A lot of people read about this stuff and they say, Illinois is a lost cause. But what do you say? It's not a lost cause at all. I mean, there's no state in the country who has more opportunity than Illinois. There's, you know, you going back to the roots, the reason Illinois really expanded was that we were the crossroads of America. It was everybody had to come through Chicago to do literally anything. That's why we are, we were and still are the railroad hub of the country, is that we connect everything. And it still exists. You know, you told the story, Hillary, uh, earlier. You came from Ohio. I came from Wisconsin. 
And people still are attracted here from all over the Midwest, and they come to Chicago. They come to Illinois. And so when we think about the future of this country and what we need, it's bigger than just this state. It's bigger of the untapped potential with, with people and where they're going and what the future holds for them, right? Is the American dream still alive? Do you have more opportunities than your parents do? And the answer is, is unequivocally, yes. We have seen more wealth grown in your and my lifetime than we have seen in the history of the world, period, right? It's still alive here. There is still opportunities. And so I think there's a frustration based on a lot of people being here. And there's good reasons to be frustrated. I'm frustrated. Our taxes are high. Corruption is high. We're seeing crime in our neighborhoods that I haven't seen before living in the city of Chicago. But I'll say the opportunities are huge. We built our lives here. We have our families here. We have our friends and communities. I still think this is the greatest city in the country. I still think it's the greatest state in the history of the nation. And it is because of the people. It is because of uh, the opportunities. That still exists here. And so we have a, a choice. Is do we give up on what are insanely rich natural opportunities? Or do we abandon them for short-term gains? Uh, I'm here for the long haul. I'm fighting this thing till the day I die. And uh, I know my daughter is going to grow up. My son is going to grow up in this state. And uh, my goal is that they continue to live here throughout the rest of their lives. Because the potential is so high and the state is so amazing. I think that people look for signs. They look for signs that what you're saying is real and it could actually happen. Now I'm bought in, obviously, here I am, I work at IPI and, and do this work every day. And I, I think, when I think about what signs indicate that what you're saying is real and is possible, one of the things that we always look back to because it happened recently was the defeat of the progressive tax, right. which would have been a foregone conclusion were it not for a lot of the messaging and outreach that we did. Right. And, and other groups as well. And other groups joined. Yep, yep. It was a huge collective effort. Um, so I, you know, when we talk about what proves to you that this turnaround is possible, that's one. Yep. What else do you see that gives you hope that change is possible? I think there's multiple things. And let's focus on the progressive text just for a second, because I think that's really interesting. Is that when this was first introduced, when this first passed out of the General Assembly before it went on the ballot, 65% of people in the state said they would support it. And then once they started digging into this and they understood the reasons, or rather where the money was going to go to, they completely changed their perspective. And we saw that number flip where 40, only 46% of the population voted for it, right? And this is something that I think if you talked about three years ago, exactly what you said, people would have thought this was a foregone conclusion. But when people are educated based on the issues that are happening, minds change. So I can speak directly to what's happening here. Uh, when, when, we first, when I first started about a decade ago, we had about 10,000 people who were following us, meaning that uh, we had their email addresses. We were engaged with them on, on various topics. And over the years, we've seen that grow, and it grew to a couple hundred thousand people. Uh, what we've seen over the last couple of years is an explosion. There is now 1.9 million people in the state of Illinois who is following our content via email. One point, we are a public policy advocacy organization, right? This concept is unheard of. But what this shows me is that people are engaged and they care, right? So that is just on our side as far as what's happening inside Illinois Policy Institute. 
But there's another issue. I talked about when I first started on staff, I didn't know what a pension was, right? I had no idea. And I was not, I was not an outlier in that. The majority of the population had no idea what a public sector pension was. Now they do. And so for the first time ever, we saw two years ago when Paul Simon uh, instituted a poll on this, 51% of the population supported pension reform. Right? It's not that they just know what pension reform is, they were supporting it. And we recently polled this, and 60-some percent of the population supported pension reform. And even more importantly, when they understood the issues, what this meant, and what it means is protecting what people have earned thus far, the promises that have been made, but making changes going forward. 82% of the population now says we support pension reform. That is mind-blowing. And so I think the key is there's something happening below the surface. There's something that people don't see. Uh, it's, it's like the duck swimming on water, right? And its legs are kicking. It's happening under the water. And there's going to be major changes in the future of the state of Illinois. And we're seeing every key indicator line up that way. I agree. Um, and you mentioned something that I want to go back to, too. Uh, so you said, you know, when, we, when you started 10 years ago, our audience was obviously much smaller. Um, but I'm curious, what else has changed at IPI since you joined? What was it like back then? And then how would you describe our organization today? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we have gone from a little uh, small group of fighters, right, this very small group, I think we had less than 20 employees at the time here uh, who would take on anything. Uh, and what I really, I'll say, in those initial days, what I really loved about the culture here is that uh, it was really entrepreneurial, is that you were small enough that everybody said, what issues do we need to take on? And you learn really quickly that way. You find out what works, and probably more importantly, you find out what doesn't work. And there's a lot of things that you test and you try, and they, they don't work. Uh, where we've gone into is instead of before we would come in and we'd find who are the people who raise their hands, meaning who are the people who are just automatically with us. And this was, this was our community, right? It was, it was relatively small. Now, this is one of the finest professional shops, I think, anywhere inside of the country. You know, we have experts. We have, you know, PhD economists who are working in our shop. We have some of the best media uh, individuals in the country who are working here in Illinois. We are doing research, innovative research on how to approach key problems. A great example of this is uh, what we saw with gerrymandering of the maps. So just uh, two weeks ago, J.B. Pritzker, uh, despite campaign promises, I won't sign a map that isn't fair, I won't sign a map that isn't fair, he signed a map that wasn't fair, and everybody knew it. Uh, and that's the problem in the state of Illinois is that we get told these little lies these little lies as far as, uh, you know, voter suppression is happening all the time because of same-day voting or because of restrictions based on not having IDs or based on motor voter, right? When you get your driver's license, you're registered to vote. This is not what suppresses voters. It's not. They, I'm not saying that there's not voters who don't come out because of it. Real voter suppression is happening in the majority sense from gerrymandering. Meaning they draw these zigzag maps that my four-year-old daughter probably draws cleaner lines on. And then they tell people, go vote, when there's nobody to go vote for, right? And if you look in the last decade in the state of Illinois, 50% of races are competitive. Meaning that there is a Republican or an Independent and a Democrat on the ballot, right? Two parties 
of, of any form, or libertarian for that matter. But only 50% are competitive, meaning that half of the people in the state don't even have a reason to show up and vote. And that's, the, that's what's missing the mark, is that a true democracy is not the ability to vote. It's not a democracy at all. It's does your vote matter? Right? When we look at other countries, when you look at the Chinas, Venezuelas, the South Koreas, or North Koreas, excuse me, it's not that they can vote. Most of these places, they can vote. The election doesn't matter. And what we're seeing inside of the Illinois, the unfortunate thing that we're seeing right here is people's votes don't matter. And instead of going and saying, hey, let's respect people. Let's make sure that we have fair maps. Let's make sure that the people have a voice. What happened? They get treated with contempt, right? It's, it's politicians who are down in Springfield who are saying, look, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you want, right? I, I, you are worthless in my viewpoint. You don't even deserve a reason to go vote. We'll tell you who you should show up for. And that's what happens. And so what I love about this place and where we've grown up to is we can fight these huge problems. We can take on gerrymandering. And instead of sitting there and saying, ah, oh, gerrymandering is terrible, which it is, we're doing something about it. And we're recruiting candidates to run in all of these races. Uh, thus far, we have 55 people who have raised their hands. Uh, half are Republicans, half are Democrats. And they are running for office. Right For the first time in nearly 20 years, everybody in this state is going to have a reason to go vote. That's amazing. And that's what this place can do. You know, pension reform, I've been talking about it for 17 years now. But for the first time, people understand what the problem is. And they know how their lawmakers go vote on it. That's power. That's, that's where the Illinois Policy Institute has come from, is not just ideas and concepts, but it's the ability and the know-how to take these things that are so frustrating in our everyday life and actually change them. I think it's awesome. Uh, it is very interesting to see how we've changed when you talk about you know, restoring democracy through choice at the ballot. Yeah. That is innovative. And you know, this idea that 50% of uh, Illinoisans go to vote for their state house position and they don't have a choice, like these are uncontested elections, that's crazy. Yeah. Most of them don't vote, right? Because what's the reason that they say, I can tell you in my district up in Lincoln Park in Chicago, I've never seen anybody run for in the state house race. So what is my incentive to going and waking up early, to standing there before work starts, and to go say, I'm going to go vote? And that's how a huge population feels. There should be an alternative. And this is not just, this is everywhere throughout the state. Right. And so instead of saying, well, no, we shouldn't have mail-in voting in Illinois or whatever, we've said, no, look, we should actually encourage people to you know, figure out how they can run if they're interested right. in civic engagement in that way. That's right. um, and it, what you were saying reminded me of um, a story from my life before I joined IPI um, because uh, I was a reporter and I worked at a suburban newspaper. And I remember I met IPI while I was doing research on the state budget. So it was May, the state was about to vote in another budget. And my story assignment was to just cover what the budget was going to do. What did it look like? What, what were the numbers? What should people know? Yeah. And I started looking at what IPI was writing. And uh, this idea of how Illinois can use loopholes to pass a 
budget that's not actually balanced because it's carrying over debt, all of these different tricks that they can do down in the legislature. It blew my mind. And I, so I wrote up my little story and I cited an IPI report. And I remember my editor re- reviewed it and I would sit next to her. She was a good editor. Um, and we would go through issues one by one. And when we got to the IPI mention, she said, I see you mentioned this research group. I've never heard of them. Are they, are they conservative or are they liberal? And I was like, well, I looked on the website. Like, it's just a research group. They're, they say they're nonpartisan. <laughs> I was not allowed to leave until we tagged IPI as conservative or liberal. And we had oh, to go with, con- she looked at the website and we had to tag IPI as conservative. And so it just leads me to something that I think we deal with a lot, which is what do people get wrong about IPI? Yeah. And what you just said with this democracy project is that half of our candidates that we've helped get educated on how to run are Republicans yeah. or identify as Republicans That's and right. half identify as Democrats. That's right. So if I had to put IPI down in a news story and half of the people that we're helping <laughs> yeah, are Republicans, right. like, like, right. so you know what, I, you get what I'm saying. Totally. So that to me is something that people get wrong about IPI when they try to peg us through a political lens. What do you think people sometimes get wrong about IPI? Well, at first, I think it's really fascinating on the, the, we we try to create these binary options, conservative or liberal, uh, as if if everybody's thought process is is delineated through this. When quite frankly, the majority of people in the state of Illinois, they're independents, they're moderates. That's where they live. So first, that's a a funny concept. And also I, I laugh whenever I hear hear the word liberals, because honestly, if, if I were going to identify this group as anything, it would be liberal, meaning traditionally pro-liberty, right? That's what the root word is. It's why in England, they always have to explain like, hey, actually liberal means something very different. It doesn't mean pro-liberty anymore. Uh, so th- there is a funny concept on that. Uh, so I think you touch base on something. Your original question was, uh, what are things that people get wrong about us? Uh, this political bend is is a really interesting concept uh, because we're not. What we look for and what we're talking to these candidates about is we're trying to build a free market majority. Right? Candidates of any political spectrum who believe in the idea that free markets are the greatest force for good ever in human existence. Right? This is what we believe. This is what we know. And it's, actually, let me say that. It's not even what we believe. It's what we know. Because we've seen it. We've seen all of the numbers, all of the data, and the, the results are out, is that, that, that free markets, when they go into different countries and different places, human beings flourish to a level that we've never seen before. And, and you're in my lifetime, Hillary, two billion people have been pulled out of poverty. I'm talking about real poverty. I'm talking about $1.90 per day. Two billion people have been lifted out of that. In your and my lifetime, uh, wealth in the United States of America, for somebody like us, it's doubled. Doubled from our parents' generation. That is, there is no greater sense of of life changing than doubling how much money you earn. Uh, And you see this in developing countries who go to a pro-free market economy, life expectancy shoots through the roof. And we've seen this and we followed it. And that's why it's it's essential and it's key. And that's, that's fundamentally what we fight for. Whether Democrats support it, Republicans support it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. In fact, on, on our bills uh, that we filed down in Springfield for these pro-free market bills, 
We have Democrats, we have Republicans on every single bill we introduce. So I think that the idea that everything has to be binary, it's just a simplistic way that people try to reduce something rather than actually thinking about what the problem and what the solution is. Uh, there's another piece on, on funding, is you get the question here, who funds you? How, how are you guys funded? Uh, and that's uh, something that uh, I haven't talked about too much, but I'm happy to really break down. Uh, here we have about 2,750 uh, supporters of our organization. The average person gives about $5,000. And they range throughout the state of Illinois. And I, I think the myth that tries to get created is, who are the secret people who are funding this? And let's find out who they are. As if, as if that was going to change our directive of, of our organization. And the reason that people think this is because this is how politics work. Right? If you look at a politician, go look to see where they're funded. You can probably find out which way they're going to go vote on issues. And academic data shows this. 80% uh, of time, lawmakers will vote with whatever party gives them the most money. So it's not, it's not an unheard of idea that people would say, oh, who's funding you? Because that's how you're going to vote. We are a free market think tank. And there has never been a time that we have gone to our, our donors and our investors and said, hey, what do you guys think we should work on? It's, it's been the same year after year for the last 20 years that we've been in existence. So I think that there is this concept of who could these people be and who are they? They're everybody. And I can tell you a couple of them. I'm a donor. Uh, my grandmother gives us money every month, uh, which is, is very sweet. But it's people throughout the state. And everybody's fighting for this idea. It's the idea of free markets being this great force for this miracle that, that came out of, out of Illinois, that came out of Chicago, and spread throughout the country. It's interesting that you bring up this concept of, okay, well, whoever gives me the most money, that's what I'm going to focus on. Because I know you and I know myself and I just, the idea that either of us would work that's somewhere right, like that right. is really funny to me. I didn't realize that that is the way it works, even in other research organizations too. You know, I've consulted with other groups and they, one of the frustrations that some of the people I've worked with have articulated is, look, when I ask them, what's their big goal for their year? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, we had this donor come to us and say, hey, if you work uh, to help us pass this massive tax credit, we're going to write you a check for $150,000. Yeah. And I, you know, I was on the phone with this person, and I remember my jaw, they couldn't see this, but my jaw fell. <laughs> um, and what I love about this place is, you know, you and I and other folks in our organization, we're very conscious and strategic about our agenda. What do we think is going to make Illinois a better place? Yeah. And we put that to agenda together, and then our fundraisers go out and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. That's right. What do you think? You want to support it? That's right. That's <laughs> it's right. It's not what people think. I know. But you can see, like, I, I think it, it, it changes the conception. I think a lot of people go and chase the money, is they say, well, how can we go out and, and raise this money? And somebody says, well, if you do this, I'll pay you money. We've never done that, and we, we would never do that. And I think that's part of the reason you see success of this organization. There's reason you see growth in this organization, not just from total donors, but overall money raised is year over year, we raise more money every single year. And the reason is that there's more people who are saying, I love this concept, right? I want an independent group who's focusing on these problems that affects my everyday life. And that's what we focus on. Uh, so it's, it's funny, that's, uh, it's, it's called mission creep in a lot of organizations. You take money for a project, and ultimately you end up chasing that money, and the money of your organization will go down every single year. 
uh, you're going to see something very, very different when you look at our finances is they go up every single year. And the reason for that is, yeah, you and I will have a conversation, Hillary, uh, as far as, okay, what do we need to focus on this year? And you'll say, okay, here's where I think our top priority should be. Here's where the biggest impact we can make is. And then we do it, right? And that's another big thing is, is telling investors, here's what we want to do. And then we go do it. We measure it. We do it. And then we go back to them and say, hey, we're going to do something even bigger next year. It's a novel concept, yeah, right, huh? Right. Um, one thing that you've introduced me to is this concept of doing what scares you. Mm. You know, uh, I think you've, you've told me anecdotes before about how, you know, public speaking terrified you yeah. and you've worked on that for hours and hours and hours. And yeah. now look, you're, as you as you know, unfortunately have had to deal with the rigors of me giving rep after rep of various speeches. But it's worked. And, you know, a couple years ago, you and I were talking and you said writing is not something that I've always worked at. You know, I feel like it's challenging for me. And now um, you have started a regular column that you post on your Medium account. And I wanted to ask you what you draw on to inspire your pieces because you focus a lot on leadership, but you also focus a lot on on life lessons. Um, and I'm just curious, like, how do you come up with what you write? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it differs every single week. And I'll say life, life really dictates what I write about. Uh, and if you've, if you followed anything that I write, it's a lot of things that happen during the week. Uh, my daughter, uh, Fiona, who's four makes a regular appearance in, in a lot of these pieces. And my son, Rocky, uh, who just turned five months old, uh, he makes an appearance. Uh, but there's things that happen every single week uh, that, that we can always, we always make a choice. And I think the problem is before you write, before you do these things, you just kind of wash over them, right? Something, the moment happens and it's either novel or cute or interesting. Uh, and then you just live your life. A couple of years ago, when actually Hillary, you told me, I think you should start writing more often. Uh, I would go home and I would write these things down. You know, Fiona would say something to me, uh, a story that I told a couple, maybe a year ago, was uh, I was on my phone and I was working on something. My daughter is pulling on my shirt. Uh, and, you know, I was trying to finish. I said, Fiona, just give me one second. Like, I just need to finish this. Uh, and she keeps pulling on my shirt. And I go, Fiona, what do you need? And she goes, I just wanted to play with my unicorn in you. Right? And I'm standing there and I'm looking at my phone and I remember thinking, what the hell? Like, how did I think that something on my phone was going to be more important than my daughter, right? My daughter who wants nothing more than to play with her father, you know, and I treated her as if I had something more important to do. It's, it's these moments, these moments that happen to all of us in our lives that I think about. And I think about how was I not prioritizing the things the right way? How was I not focusing on things the right way? Uh, so that's really what inspires me is, uh, you know, those little moments also, I'm, I'm an avid reader, so I get a lot of content from books that I read and, you know, these people who are brilliant, who've lived before us, who live right now, and they have these little nuggets of, of truth, and you study, and you learn, and you, you, you gain that knowledge. Uh, so I, I feel like I'm fortunate that I'm around a, a wonderful family, that uh, I get to read books from brilliant people, and then I also get to work with uh, amazing talents who I often write about in my weekly pieces. Well... In the spirit of talking about the things that we're going to prioritize, because you just mentioned 
your priorities. Yeah. And Fiona and Rocky and That's Anna right. are your priorities. That's right. Here at IPI, what are our priorities for the coming year? And what are we going to get done? And I want to close with that. There are huge opportunities this next year. And I would say that I am so excited about the opportunities uh, that present themselves. The first one is going to be pensions. Pensions is 25% of our state budget. It's the reason that our property taxes are going up every year. It's the reason that there is a divestment in the poor and the disadvantaged in, in after school programs and things that really help lift our society up. Uh, we need to fix our pension problem. And the first step uh, is actually a pension plan that got passed uh, several years ago uh, when, when Bruce Rauner was governor. They passed a tier three pension system. Uh, that means all new employees would go into a hybrid 401k style plan, but it lacked an effective date. So it never became law. Uh, this year, we're going to go work to make sure that there's an effective date in this so that it's no longer this defined benefit system where you're guaranteed a certain payout. It's that you go take a portion of your money, the state matches it, and then you throw it into the system just like everybody else. That's going to be a huge, uh, a huge change. And then going forward, it's going to be a constitutional pension uh, uh, amendment that we're going to vote on. And our goal is to pass this by 2024 with, with the General Assembly. And that's because, look, we should protect what people have earned thus far. But the problem with the pension system is that it doesn't make any changes going forward. You know, I tell the story about myself a lot. I worked for the state for seven years. Uh, I left making $36,000 when I left staff. Uh, if I went back, my, my pension would be based on uh, the, last, uh, the last years of me working there. Uh, I've quit. I, I decided I don't want to work for you. And what the Supreme Court ruled is that they have a guaranteed contract with me for the rest of my life going forward. That needs to change, and we need to protect what we've earned and that I've put in thus far. But what we need to do is make sure that somebody like me can't come back into the system and earn high dollar amounts and then collect off of tax dollars. It's completely morally wrong, and that needs to change. Another piece is going to be on school choice. Uh, you have people who are stuck in failed schools, and we saw the numbers just come out last week where uh, in a lot of areas in this state, 30% of people uh, kids in our state are reading at grade level. That's wrong, right? And we can keep making excuses on why that's happening. But what ultimately, the, the root of this is parents and kids should have a choice. They should decide if they want to go to this school. They should be able to decide if a school is going to be better for their children. And right now, there's only very few people who actually have a choice. It's people who have the financial means to do it. And so instead of locking these kids up, in failing schools, in districts uh, where, where they're not getting the proper education, we think that these kids with these amazing opportunities should be able to go to the place that's right for them. And, and the opportunities here are endless. I mean, you hear countless stories of these kids who are failing in one program going to just another school. Same kid, different school, and thriving. And so what we're going to be doing is expanding the school choice program here in the state of Illinois, expanding the caps on it, extending the sunsets so that every kid then has a choice of where they want to go to school and what's going to be best for them, not what the government decides is going to be the best school we can provide. Uh, and then finally, elections is people need to have faith in the democracy. They need to have faith in who they're going to go vote for. And the first step of that is giving them an option. And that's why we are fully committed to this full slate program meaning that every race throughout the state of Illinois has competition, both Republican, Democrats, 
will be working for anybody. So if you're listening to this podcast and ever had an interest in running for office, please contact us. We would love to help you and we'd love to get you a voice out there because that's true democracy is having a reason to go vote. Uh, and we're going to be doing that. I guess the last thing I would add on there is there's a constitutional amendment that will be going on the ballot uh, for unions and it's expanding union power in a variety of different ways. Uh, this is the first time that we're going to see individuals have an opportunity to go vote on expanding union power. The thing I love about this is we have an audience of, as we said before, about 1.9 million people. We're going to be able to educate them and people will be able to have a vote, an educated vote on what's going to happen for this future of the state of Illinois. Uh, and I predict right here for the first time ever uh, that this is going down next November. Uh, so I think there's huge opportunities with school choice, with, with elections in our democracy, with people having a vote with unions and how much power they can have, and then our pension system to get rid of this debt. Well, your enthusiasm is contagious, <laughs> and this was fun. I really appreciate your time and, and your willingness to talk about what motivates you and what you hope for the future here in Illinois. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To keep up with all of our work at the Illinois Policy Institute and to sign up for our newsletter, visit illinoispolicy.org. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and give us a five-star review. We'll see you next week for another episode of The Policy Shop.